Hi, welcome to valuationpodcast.com, a podcast and video series about all things related to business and valuation. My name is Melissa Gregg, and I'm a company valuation expert in St. Louis, Missouri. I have the privilege of discussing venture capital and startup company valuations today with Lorenzo Carver, a valuation expert in Boulder, Colorado. How are you? Welcome, Lorenzo. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Good to see you. Good. Yeah. So you actually wrote a book called Venture Capital Valuation and have recently co-founded a company, Brainsprays.com, which is an educational tool for children using Alexa. So why don't you give us some of your background and experience as an entrepreneur and starting various businesses? Because that's really the framework with which you know also how to do valuations, but mm-hmm. it's your it's what you've been doing your entire career, right? right? Mm-hmm. That's true. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, my background for starting businesses, the first business I started was actually a construction company, mm-hmm. um, which is a really, really hard business, by the way. <laughs> um, and I didn't know anything about accounting or finance, but we had to get something called a performance bond in order to bid for contracts. So in order to do that, you had to have financial statements, which I didn't literally did not know what it even was. Um, so, but I did know computers. So, um, so I bought a software product and spit out a bunch of financial statements that I'm sure were totally like bogus, but you know, we got the bond and that was it. So, (laughs) right. So that's kind of how I got into, you know, starting businesses. Um, and so. you've created software, you've created mm-hmm. financial analysis tools, like all of these mm-hmm. types of things that have actually helped valuators do their work, mm-hmm. essentially. Okay, so now we get into startup land. And some people don't really understand, like, we'll call it emerging markets, or we'll call it, you know, uh, seed companies or early stage. But basically, what is a startup business from a valuation perspective, or from, you know, a a business perspective? That's a really great question. So because um, the term has kind of come to mean very different things in recent years. So there's a company called uh, Y Combinator. Have you heard of them? Mm-hmm. So, um, so anybody that's dealing with startups at all should check out Y Combinator. So a gentleman named Paul Graham founded it and kind of like codified a lot of the stuff that relates to the startup world um, to kind of gather like a critical mass of people starting these businesses and put them in touch with people that have expertise. Um, so when they refer to a startup, them or Techstars or any of these other incubators and the investors that put money into them, they're talking about rocket ships. So they're not talking about like, oh, let's go start a pizza shop. Right. Or like, oh, let's go start a construction. They're talking about this could be the next General Motors, which would have been a big thing like 10 years ago, I guess. But right. <laughs> now like the next General Motors, that's like a fraction of Google's market cap, right? So, right. but The next but, Amazon, maybe. Exactly. Right? So yeah, so that's what they're looking for. They're looking for some stratospheric result. And so the only way that happens is something grows like rapidly, you know? So, and that defines in a lot of ways what a startup is, something that has that ability to grow super fast. And anything that can grow that fast, obviously you're changing somebody's life, either a business's life or an individual's life. Um, with with a product or a service or you know some kind of angle um, on the world, so 
So I'd say that, you know, that's a definition of a startup from, you know, kind of the high growth perspective. Um, but other people use the term a little differently, right? So some people would say, oh, you know, I'm a startup. I just started. So, and I think both are applicable, but I think here we're like today, we're really talking about like the high growth version of a startup. So, which, you know, definitively is something that has the capacity, you know, to take over an industry, change an industry. Yeah. A lot of times I think that people are looking at startups as like, uh, I have an idea Mm -hmm. and I think someday I'm going to put together a business around it or systems or something. Mm -hmm. And we're really talking about something that has the capability to, with some funding, maybe get to a different place. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of times people are trying to understand. So I have a, a good concept Uh, Maybe I have some investors or maybe I just have smart people that have come together and and then I got to go to the venture. Like that's what we always go to just in our minds. Mm -hmm. You know, we know angel investors or we know, you know, smaller investors, family and friends and things Mm -hmm. like that. But what are some of the different stages of venture capital funding from a startup company perspective? Yeah, if we're talking about like the real growth companies that over the last. 20 years has almost again become like codified where you know it it wasn't that way 30 years ago it Mm -hmm. just wasn't so um all the people you know startups even the vcs they were investing in things that weren't necessarily like technology i mean because i can remember some vc firms that like oh somebody has a new toothbrush yes that's technology yes you have a patent on it but by today's standards it's like that person would be going to an angel investor or something Mm -hmm. right um, or some family office or something, someone other than like a kind of VC today. <clears throat> but today, the, 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 you could say that the stages are pre-seed, which is like, oh, I have an idea of something I might do. And believe it or not, there's whole systems out there to support those people now. Mm-hmm. And most of these accelerators, they will take, they love people at that stage. Um, and that kind of speaks to another aspect of startup companies and kind of like who can actually get funding because a lot of times people that are at that pre-seed stage, they're young people who haven't really maybe done anything else, you know, from a business perspective, but they have some other attributes that make them, you know, kind of suitable to kind of that collection of people. Either Mm -hmm. they worked at a successful startup company, they went to a very prestigious school, um, they have some other like academic or scientific achievement, you know, um, they crack some code somewhere, you don't know, you know, so, so, or they just seem like, you know, they're really bright and really ambitious. So you just don't know, but I'm just saying that <clears throat> at the pre-seed stage, there's actually resources for those people today. There wasn't, I mean, there really wasn't 10 years ago, <laughs> Or more well, like fifteen years ago, and these are the so, incubators, right? Right. That that yeah. really try, and you and a lot of times you actually have to apply to be a part of them. Like you, oh, you, you definitely go do. through a process. Mm-hmm. Like you don't just say, "Hey, I have an idea. Give That's me right. some seed funding." Right. It's like you kind of go through an application process, depending mm-hmm. upon the incubator, to hone your skills, hone right. the concept, mm-hmm. um, and then kind of where do they go from there? Yeah. So, I mean, the incubators, so it's, I, it's kind of funny before I met like, uh, NACVA or mm-hmm. NACVA, 
uh, I actually met them through an incubator indirectly, believe it or not. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so when I started Liquid Scenarios, which was to value, you know, venture funded companies, high growth companies, um, and it would basically suck in like a spreadsheet that just had like their cap table. And then it'd generate all these models for them and say, okay, this is the value of this company for financial reporting or for tax purposes. And so the, um, a couple of the people on my team were in St. Petersburg, um, which is like a lot of bright people there. So, and they saw that there was a meeting below my office that this VC was having. <laughs> They're like, hey, you should go to this meeting. And so I went there. I met a really cool guy that was a VC. His partner founded a company called Techstars, so which is probably like the number two, well, number one or number two in terms of total number of companies that they've funded. Wow. Um, and then the other person who founded Techstars is now the governor of Colorado. So, um, and he actually in his dorm room started like several, like multiple, you know, what became like billion dollar companies. So, um, yeah. So, so basically one of the groups from their first cohort or the first people that went through there, one of the advisors um, said, Hey, you should talk to these guys that are doing this triple bottom line tool. And so they visited me. I gave them like, you know, we, we exchanged some information and like, Hey, you should check out these exit planning people. And so I went to their event for the exit planning and I met Brian Jones there. So there you go. Okay. You know, so anyway, but, but yeah, so the seed stage um, places, Today they were writing checks at like a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. I mean, back in the day, I think they were given like ten thousand or something. You know, ten, twenty, five, you know, fifty, like, yeah. But they would have these events where all the people in the audience had the inclination and the capacity to write a check, which meant that in a seed round, right? So they're pre-seed before they go there, but they're seed once they're done. Gotcha. So at the seed stage, you're talking like half a million to a million dollars today. Back then, you were talking like a hundred grand. You know, and maybe a bigger seed would be like five hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. So, um, but today, pretty much, if you go through one of those, you're guaranteed because people know that like they've de-risked this thing, they've honed the message in terms of like what is the startup doing, which that may sound like an insignificant thing, but I can assure you, in a lot of cases, it's more important than the, what what they're actually building. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because I don't remember, but these events, and I don't remember always like what they're totally termed, but you have a certain amount of time, right? Mm -hmm. You might have like a minute or three minutes Mm -hmm. to do your pitch, right? Right. So Uh you do like your deal pitch and you say, this is who I am. This is how much money I need. (laughs) Who knows? But yeah, you know, it's it's like a a better elevator speech Mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah, it is. It's like a lot of them call it demo day. Yeah. And so, um, but you know, they used to call it like, you know, just a pitch. Um, and it still is a pitch. And some people say like a two sentence description or one sentence description of the company. So, and those same guys from Russia actually, um, live here now that I was mentioning, mm-hmm. they started a company that I indirectly funded cause they're like, Hey, we're doing this thing, you know, um, you know, do you want to put some money into it? And I'm like, you know, I don't want to take a piece of your company. I said, but I do need some work done. So how much is it going to cost you to do it? And it wasn't that much money. Yeah. And so um, I said, fine, then just, you know, bill me ahead of time and that'll cover your cost, you know? So they want a com- competition and ended up coming here to the United States um, and got the pitch like at the first like tech crunch, like back when tech crunch was like a startup itself. Right, you know? right. 
And so, and now they live here and like, you know, in Cal, not California, they live in Texas and they have a very, you know, successful startup, but, <clears throat> but yeah, so this whole pitch thing is like, it's a big deal. And if there's something that's like valuation people can learn from all startups, like communication is such a big deal and understand, standing how to best describe a company enhances its value tremendously. So, um, and there's a company out there that kind of has turned this into a business for also for like pre-seed or even pre-pre-seed companies. Mm -hmm. So where it's like, we don't even have an idea, but we built this thing. What do you think of it? Right. right. <laughs> Believe it or not, now you have like a place for that. So yeah. Like, do a- you want to build the idea instead of me? Like, do you want right. to take it or do you want me to do it? Well, because- it's kind of like, yeah, like we built this thing. Is this a business or not? But whatever, let's have a discussion around it and then see what other people think of it. Mm-hmm. So, and um, this company called Pioneer, um, pioneer.app uh, was started by a young guy from, he's not young anymore, but like when he came here, he went through Y Combinator and he started a company that he sold to Apple for like tens of millions of dollars. Um, and then he became a partner with a Y Combinator. And now he started this thing, which is for like people with an idea, you know, gotcha. or before they even have an idea, it's like, oh, we coded this thing because, you know, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so really it's like reaching back, you know, even further before seed, pre-seed and now, you know, we don't even have an idea and let's see if someone's interested. Well, and I think a lot of people get their knowledge about venture capital or startup funds from like shows like Shark Tank, right? Right. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things that Shark Tank will show you is that there have been good ideas and bad Mm -hmm. presenters or bad, you know, not not bad, but they just, they weren't the right person to run Mm -hmm. the company. Right. Um, and and it became very apparent in their very apparent in their communication mm-hmm. <laughs> that they were not probably going to be the best person. So somebody could buy the idea. So you mm-hmm. go pre-seed, you go seed, and then like, what if you get some funding? Now yeah, what's so happen? At seed, you're either um, bootstrapping the seed, okay. and you get to like either you know some indication of validation. So, and validation can come in a couple different ways. So the best kind of validation is customer. You know, you have a customer that likes your product. You have more than a couple of them. They're sticking around. They're telling their friends about the company. So, and a lot of people in the business will call that traction. So, and so, and if you have that traction, then you have the ability to attract either a seat stage investor, or if you have enough traction, it, and there's enough visibility than maybe a Series A investor. So a Series A investor today is writing like a three to five million dollar check. So a Series A investor ten years ago was writing a million bucks. You know, mm. maybe twelve years ago. <laughs> and so yeah. every year it keeps going higher and higher. And some of that has to do with competition, I believe, because there's so many deals out there now. Um, and there's this asset class is like everybody wants it, like. You know, if you're a pension fund or something like that, or a really, you know, wealthy family or something, they know that venture returns are like what can make a real big difference for them. So, you know, the world is awash in money still. So, um, but yeah, so the Series A, you know, would come like after the seed. 
So, and then you have like a series A investor. Now, some people will still refer to those people as seed investors, uh, but, you know, technically, you know, a lot of people will differentiate it. So, and now at that kind of seed stage, in addition to the individuals that would write checks, they have these syndicates. So, and these things have formalized also, again, didn't exist, I would say 15 years ago, did not really exist, these syndicates, Um, but they bring efficiency to the process because you know all of those people they're just there to invest at that stage so this reduces a lot of the steps um and also can create a filter um to say okay we don't want to look at any companies that you know aren't connected to these people or aren't connected to these industries and so and then instead of one person writing a half a million dollar check you end up with like you know maybe 10 people writing a $50,000 check or 20 people writing a $25,000 check or somebody famous that everybody knows saying here's 10 grand. And because that person did it, it's like the rest of the money just flows in all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. So, so there's places like AngelList. Um, Have you heard of them? AngelList? Mm -hmm. AngelList. um, So they've done a lot of innovative stuff with that company. Um, But now they have like a pretty sizable um, syndicate. I mean, actually, probably the biggest one now that I think of it. Um, there's someone named um, Jason Galakinus. Um, He has something called Launch. You've seen yeah. him? Yeah. yeah. So, and he's like extraordinarily successful. Um, right. Seed stage investor invested in Uber, all these companies that became what they call unicorns. Yes. So, are companies, private companies valued at a billion dollars. So, and now he has a syndicate. Um, and there's other people that have started to create kind of unique takes on the venture fund itself um, to like eliminate the formal structure of here's some limited partners and right. instead like kind of crowdsource these things, so to speak. Well, because so. the, the venture capitalists like, you know, before would have like a platform company and then they would want to add more smaller companies that were maybe in that same space or could support it. But with technology changing so much Mm -hmm. and these, you know, I mean, we're really having the online perspective allows us to know more about smaller companies faster, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. You know, you could have somebody Mm -hmm. that blows up on Instagram or TikTok Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you couldn't even, that wasn't even a concept five, 10 years ago. You know, Mm -hmm. so I think that it's kind of disrupting that space because you have a lot of people that have the money and they Mm -hmm. want to invest and they want to kind of find that, you know, potential unicorn, but they Mm -hmm. want to try to find something fabulous. um, And it's, it's easier to access that information now because as long as you're online, like Mm -hmm. if you're still waiting for some of, you know, the people to find you, that might not work so well, but Mm -hmm you know, we have them online, which I think is a a little bit different process. Um, Definitely. There's no doubt about that. So, and I just say like, you know, private equity versus venture are totally two different things. So like the private equity companies will do like these roll-ups and, you know, that's more financial engineering stuff. The VC side, I would say until you get to like the later stage growth kind of funds, there is, there's really no financial engineering there. I mean, so they're purely, I'd say in most cases, other than the people, you know, obviously they're making sure there's a fit with the team. That's like the number one thing that they believe that those people can take it all the way. 
Um, the other piece is just the market. So mm-hmm. where they say this is a market that is ripe for someone to change it. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be big enough that if we get our little sliver of it, we have a magnificent return on, you know, investment. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, but you're right. I mean, definitely everything is easier in a lot of ways because one distribution's easier. So, um, because now like you make something and it goes out immediately. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is competition is greater. So when I wrote my first software product, there were literally only, I think, 100,000 software titles in the whole world. That's in every language. You know? Right, right. So as long as it did something, you know, I would get some customers. You know, Right. <laughs> Today, there's probably 100,000 soft new products every week. So, <laughs> so then just think of like an iPhone, right, where everybody's making an app for the iPhone. And so... And so to get someone's attention and say, one, this is something that you need, um, it's a lot higher bar to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the marketing piece becomes in some ways more difficult, but awareness or your kind of distribution channels are substantially, you know, more accessible because Mm -hmm. all you have to do is, you know, get through certification from Apple or Google or Amazon. And all of a sudden you have access to, billions of users around the world, right? Mm -hmm. So whereas before when I started, I made a deal with a company called Digital River for my first product. And they just started, the internet had just started in terms of being a way to distribute software. So I had to print like a bunch of CDs. And I remember thinking to myself, one, this is a lot of money to print these CDs. (laughs) Two, if there's a bug, you're like kind of screwed, you know? Yeah. Because now you printed all of this stuff, you can't update it. Um, and I literally had, I would say like many nightmares, like after it was released, like that there was some bug in there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Fortunately there wasn't because with finance stuff, you know, if there's like a number that's screwed up or something, it's pretty, pretty much a brick, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. going to use it. So. Yeah, um, no, it's, it, I think things have completely changed, but you have a good point that most early stage companies are probably looking more at the private equity space or private equity players are looking at them. Venture capital is going to be kind of in a different, you're going to look at that much later in the, in the stages, right? I would kind of flip those. Flip so on. the okay. private equity people are looking for, they're like closer to the financial buyer, even though they may be strategic, right? But they're really the financial buyer in the valuation context. So right. where it's like, okay, If I combine all these companies, then, you know, I can eliminate these things and get this higher multiple. And if I buy them on the cheap, then, you know, I package the whole thing. I can sell them either to another platform or I can take them public. So that to me is just like financial engineering. Mm -hmm. VCs don't care about that. I mean, they really don't. They're not even thinking about that. They're not thinking about selling to private equity, although sometimes you see those transactions, especially today at the growth level. Mm-hmm. Um, they're literally thinking, okay, here's a team, you know, at the earlier stages, um, that has the capability to disrupt the market mm-hmm. and get a big chunk and have some advantage over time. And so there's nothing to show for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's other than like, you know, kind of an indication, a signal that there's potential, but a lot of that signal is from the person that they're talking to and from, you know, kind of their 
gut feel and kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Then they look for validation, honestly, which the validation, like I said, is either they impress somebody else that they trust. And frankly, mm-hmm. you know, that herd mentality, that's mm-hmm. a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other piece would be, you know, that they've actually convinced customers. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that's so significant is because, amongst other things, I'm sure a lot of them have backed companies, you know, and put large amounts of quant- money in and had no customer traction at all. You know, mm-hmm. where it's like, all right, we put this money in and nobody wants this thing. Right. And so, you know, and so a lot of people have done a lot of iterating around that. And so, you know, there's kind of systems in place for people to get a feel of whether or not there's really a potential need for this in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And if this is the company to address that and kind of get that fit, and like yeah. a term that they all use is like, you know, kind of product market fit, um, which proof of concept. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do, so. do people even want this product? Right. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But w- what I was thinking is that mm-hmm. when, when they're looking for funding or when mm-hmm. they're trying to get funding, people talk about getting, you know, try to get some capital or they talk about try to get smart mm-hmm. money. Right. You know, and so everybody's kind of between do you just need the money because you you mm-hmm. have the systems in place and you have the management team mm-hmm. or do you need to get smart money? Do you should you just ever always get smart money? <laughs> no. Or no. I mean, it depends on what you're doing. Yeah. So, and it depends on who you are. So, and I can give you like pristine examples of companies okay. that would never, ever get venture capital. Seriously. Okay. They just gotcha. never would because yeah. of, you know, who they were, um, what they'd done in the past. But, but somehow, you know, they, they hacked the system and they achieved tremendous growth, mm-hmm. better than like whole portfolios of venture back companies. And in those instances, they would never get professional money from a VC. Mm-hmm. However, after they get rid of that company, now they can get professional money from anybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's companies that I know that like people that have started companies where they got $250,000 from friends, family, whatever, and generated a hundred million dollars in cash flow. Mm-hmm. in cash flow, not selling the business, actual, like actual cash flow, you know? <laughs> And I love it. No, you just kidding. Rarely, you're never, you don't really see this from venture back companies. I'm just being honest, you know, you yeah. don't. I mean, that's like the exception to the rule, but that's not their model. That's not what they're trying to do. They're yeah. trying to get the top line growth. They're trying to get the customer growth. And they're trying to basically push other people out and say, this is a new way of doing this. And the example I gave, they were in like, you know, financial services industry. And basically, you know, so this is like a mature industry. Yes, they were incredible managers, um, and they were applying technology, but it wasn't proprietary technology. You know, it was mm-hmm. basically they just knew what they were doing, and they mm-hmm. did it better than anybody else, and they made a ton of money. And there's lots of examples of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but those companies, they're not a fit for venture capital. Now, once they get up to like $50 million, yeah, there's like tons of people that will like fight over one another to like put money into the thing. And a lot of times, those business, they really don't need it at that stage. They can go to the bank and get it for nothing. Mm-hmm. So if they need working capital, so well, and I think that that's the hard part <clears throat> in the startup in, in the startup land and in the incubators. You know, everybody wants like the right answer. Like, tell me the answer of how I'm going to get the money and make millions of dollars. And there isn't always a right answer. And then mm-hmm. the next thing that they kind of go through 
um, is like, okay, well, then I need a formal valuation mm-hmm. and I need to know what I'm worth. And, you right. know, I, I haven't really started anything. So, I mean, you, let's be real. Like, do you need a formal valuation? No. If you're seeking waste funding? of money, waste of time. So complete waste of time. First yeah. of all, the least, the least qualified people to tell you the value of an early stage company is a person doing evaluation. I mean, <laughs> just being honest, you know, mm-hmm. and I would definitely include myself, you know, and I've like looked at thousands of these things. So, and you know, there's just, you have to have very close domain expertise. And so in my opinion, in a lot of cases, the person that's actually writing the check, if they're writing a lot of those checks, they have a feel for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. And they have that feel only because they put that on the line several times. They've talked to the people. They've seen the industry. So the person writing the checks, nine times out of 10, they have the best perspective. Doesn't mean they have the best model. When it gets to later stage, they definitely don't. But that mm-hmm. doesn't matter, you know, because most deals will not even get to the later stage. Then beyond that, there's people that just have really extraordinary domain expertise. So um, one person is this guy, Robert Scoble, um, who's like been around tech companies. He's written like several books. He like, you know, had a camera shop. I mean, like all this stuff, like, but like he could tell you like the value of Tesla, like before Tesla was Tesla. He could tell you the value of Twitter before Twitter, like half the people in the world even knew what it was. Mm-hmm. So no valuator could do that. Just mm-hmm. honestly. I mean, in fact, one of the best valuators for these types of companies, I remember him at a conference once like making jokes about people with Teslas. And I thought to myself, you obviously have not been in a Tesla. <laughs> this was, I don't know, maybe like, I'm going to say a decade ago or something, right? So, because if you had, you'd realize like, it's like going to make these other cars dinosaurs, you know, and all these companies are going to have to catch up. So, and so it's similar, but like, if you go further back in time, a lot of these things are like, you know, not, there's not these layers of abstraction available. Like Mm -hmm. if you go back to Cisco, like how many people actually even know what like networking was or what a router was? Nobody had like internet when they started other than Mm -hmm. like the military, right? (laughs) So, so there's like a smaller, smaller pool of people that can even understand what the value proposition is. If you go further back in time, go to Intel, right? When Intel was was founded, I mean, you maybe had, if you had a million people in the United States that even knew what a freaking semiconductor was, I would be shocked, you know? <laughs> um, so but that's the hard answer that I don't think people really want to hear all the time is that the best person to kind of value what you're worth at that level is somebody mm-hmm. that's willing to put their money right. into it. Exactly. And you might have to go through a bunch of different of those types of people that have different ways of looking Mm -hmm. at the value Mm -hmm. um, that call it valuation just like we do, but Mm -hmm. it's really private equity looks at it different. Venture Mm -hmm. capital looks at valuation different. And then within those two, every single firm Mm -hmm. looks at it different. Exactly. But I don't think that the startup community understands that they kind of think, well, you're just saying that because of whatever reason, Mm -hmm. but the reality is it, you know, I said your company 
is worth what somebody is willing to give to That's you right. for a certain percentage mm-hmm. and you are willing to accept. That's right. Because on a given day, if you need the money, you might mm-hmm. accept less than you would on the next day. You got and I think it. that that's hard mm-hmm. to grasp sometimes because they think that there's some number out there, like that we're going and we're finding that number and then we're bringing mm-hmm. it to them as a package and saying, right. guess what? You're worth 5 million mm-hmm. or you're worth 1 million, you know? And I think that that's um, a hard thing to understand. So it definitely is. And I mean, the other pieces, um, even once that person is giving you the money, and this is where a little bit of, background or maybe evaluator that has experience in the space is kind of helpful is even if they said, okay, here's 30, I'm taking 30% of your company and I'm giving you a million dollars or something. Um, the reality is they're getting preferred stock, you know? <laughs> so that is worth a whole world of things different than the common stock at the earliest stages. Yes. Management still has like in theory, some control, but most of these things need another round of funding. And the only one, the person that's generally going to get that is like the other investors that are involved in the company. Obviously, management has to execute. The founders have to execute. So so it's not just the percentage that they're getting. It's really like, what are the terms? Mm-hmm. So um, so like sometimes, you know, they have like a preference, like they get paid first. Um, and there's countless stories, not so much anymore, but like years ago when the terms were a little more, let's say, not founder friendly. <laughs> Um, and some were truly draconian, especially on the East Coast, um, mm-hmm. and especially in like the biotech space. So, and but there's reasons for that because when we say startup, we're talking like broadly now, but there are clearly differences. Like if I'm talking about a drug company, an early stage drug company, versus I'm talking about, you know, here's a social media company, <laughs> or here's something like like some kids can literally like hack on the weekend and they have a product on Monday. And then if I if somebody puts a little money into it, then maybe they have a hundred thousand customers in a month, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're talking about a drug, something you're going to stick in somebody's body, yeah, mm-hmm. that's regulated in this country. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's this whole, you know, it's going to take you years and a ton of money to get to the stage where you can even put that into a person, a human, unless it's you know some kind of special case like orphan drug or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, then you have a totally different set of investors and they have a different set of expectations, even though they're both venture capitalists. And historically, you've had a complete different set of terms. So where you look at a lot of these companies, they have something called accumulated dividend, where it like accrues this dividend, effectively giving them a bigger chunk of the company over time, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, that may seem like really unfair if you're talking about an internet company. But if you're talking about a drug company, it's like, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. So the faster you meet your milestones, you know, the less this accrues. Mm -hmm. So not unreasonable, you know. Uh, But yeah, so it's not just the percentage that they get, which that's the other thing. Like in a lot of people that are beyond the stage of, you know, is this company going to get funded? And they're actually negotiating with VCs. Um, I think a lot of people get hung up on like, what's the valuation that they're getting? And I'm like, you know, I understand they have to do that because, you know, that's a good person. They're like negotiating, but I'm like, you're negotiating the wrong thing because the thing that matters is you're going to be with that person for a long time. If that person sucks or if there's like any question about whether or not you can trust that person, 
you need to shop around. It doesn't matter what the number is or what the deal terms or who they know is because it'll come back. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I've met like lots of people that have built multi-billion dollar companies, you know, and that sounds kind of funny. It's like, you met lots of people that, yeah, I have. And I'm always shocked at how many of them hate their investors. <laughs> like literally, they're, oh, I hate those and VCs. And I'm like, hmm, this is very interesting because I'm like, well, you know, there's that. But, you know, <laughs> without that capital, you know, but like from the founder's perspective, a lot of times they're like, I could have made this so much bigger. Yeah. And I mean, that seems shocking to like, you know, if you've never done that. Mm-hmm. But there's great examples of people doing that. So one would be like PeopleSoft. You heard of them? Mm-hmm. So they got acquired by Oracle, who like they bought so much stuff. And now it looks like maybe a piece of TikTok. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but leading up to that point, I mean, they actually institutionalized this thing of like acquiring tech companies, mm-hmm. like when nobody else was doing it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so when they bought PeopleSoft, the founders of PeopleSoft were not really cool with that. You know, and um, and even though that was like a massive acquisition mm-hmm. and they went out, they started a new company and it's huge. I mean, mm-hmm. it's massive, just as big. So, yeah, when they're like, you know, we're better than that. A lot of mm-hmm. times they're right, you know. Right. But like the well, VCs, they yeah. need their money back. You know? <laughs> they have investors. And you know? the, the trade off is that you need money as a mm-hmm. startup and right. they'll give you money, but they're mm-hmm. going to take and, and maybe they only take 10, 15, 30%, right. but they're going to be equal control or more control. Right, exactly. And that's where it becomes, it's not, it's no right. longer kind of a dictatorship. It's a democracy. Exactly. And now we got to vote on things and now got we got to agree to things. Right. And so I think that that's really a good thing that if you're going to start taking money from people, you have to be kind of aligned either in vision, in mm-hmm. personality. Like, you yeah, know, right. I like to say, are you... Well, I like to say this more so for when you're like partnering with somebody, but in general, but like if you were, if you were stuck in a basement with them for like a week, mm-hmm. are you both coming out alive? Because if you're not, that's right. not the person, you know, cause some of these are difficult conversations. They're, you know, growing a company is mm-hmm. stressful and painful. Yep. Um, and so you want somebody that maybe you don't want to kill in the basement, but no, we'd, we'd never no, That's do that. totally true. I mean, seriously, <laughs> I mean, right? it's, it's a marriage, you know, yeah. and like there's more than one investor in a lot of these, you know, all mm-hmm. these companies there is. So, you know, so now you're married to like all these other people. Now, obviously, usually there's like one person controlling the shots at each stage, mm-hmm. but it's kind of funny because yeah, I mean, you're basically, you're in bed with all of these people. And yeah. some are quiet. Some just want to like, here, That's take right. the $5,000. Mm-hmm. I just want to be a passive investor. And then they might say yeah. that, but then mm-hmm. they're not just sitting back and doing nothing. Right. Um, but there there are a couple times when we need an actual valuation. Mm-hmm. And so can you tell us a little bit more about like, what is a 409A valuation, which I yeah, think definitely. most startup people know that term, mm-hmm. right. but like, when do they actually need it is the they, question. Yeah. They need it when they start issuing stock um, after they got financing typically. Okay. So historically what happens, well, what happens now is when you issue founder stock, a lot of times it's valued at par value, which is, effectively saying it's worth nothing. Right. Which is not unreasonable, you know. 
So whatever the par value could be 0.001 per share. So yeah, it ends up being like a dollar, a hundred bucks or something. That's not significant to anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, back, I think it was, I'm going to say around 2005 ish, 2006. Um, there was this weird thing they did with the tax law where they thought they were like going to somehow recover money from people's stock options or something. Um, and they came up with 409A. So to basically do that, mm-hmm. um, which is ridiculous. It's more applicable to larger companies, frankly, okay. where they were doing like some crazy stuff with stock options. I mean, when I say crazy, I don't want to say illegal because I'm not a lawyer, but it seemed illegal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, you backdate, you're publicly traded, you backdate your options. I mean, right. you deal in litigation. I mean, right. But Doesn't you know, seem like a great idea, no. right? Well, like with the right lawyer, they all got away with it, you know. So there's a lot of it going on, and so, a lot of it was they created this 409a valuation yeah. process, I guess, because you would also want to get people involved, and you would instead of because you didn't have any money to pay them, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but you needed a CFO or you needed a CEO, and you'd be like, "Hey, why don't I give you some stock right. in exchange for that's your compensation." Kind of thing, and they had standards for that. That went on for years. And mm-hmm. frankly, um, you know, going back to the Intel example, I mean, this was a lot of the reasons why tech companies were able to attract engineers that otherwise would be working for large companies, mm-hmm. because those large companies were given any stock to employees. The only people getting stock were at the C level, so mm-hmm. exact executives that typically weren't from a technical background largely from a managerial background. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, they were basically like kind of dictators. And Mm -hmm. so like the people actually like cranking this stuff out, were not getting a piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. And so it was a great tool for people to attract that talent to say, Hey, you're going to have a piece of the company. Um, Even though statistically most of those companies, you know, they're never going to survive, but some Mm -hmm. of them, it's going to be like a windfall of windfalls and pay for great grandchildren to live, go to really good schools, drive nice cars and, you know, whatever. So, um, but what they used to do is a lot of times they would just say 10% of the fund, of the fund, of the pricing for the preferred. And historically, that's what you saw a lot of. And then some people would change it. They would be like, okay, it's 10% at this stage. Then later stage is maybe 30%, 25%. But typically it used to be like 10 you'd always see 10%. And if mm-hmm. you go back to old filings and look at them, you do the math, it's usually 10%. So that's what it was. So the other thing that coincided with the tax law changes was um, what was called at the time FAS 123 or FAS 123R. You may have heard of it. Mm -hmm. So but basically it was saying, and this goes back to like this whole concept of, oh, we got more companies that are public now where all these employees have stock options Mm -hmm. and there's no expense. So aren't you giving up some value by right. giving them these shares? Shouldn't that be reflected on the income statement? Right. I'm not arguing either way, frankly. I mean, I think financial accounting is such a mess now. It's like seriously, nobody read the freaking financial statements 20 years ago. Right. Now right. they're like 10 times as long. <clears throat> mm-hmm. The actual bankers on the deals do not read them. Mm-hmm. You know, the analysts don't even read the whole financials. I mean, it's that big that no mm-hmm. one, it's not approachable. Mm-hmm. So, but they've added all this fair value stuff. So it's there. But the objective was to get a more kind of fair way of presenting it. 
because mm-hmm. yes, you gave something up, right? Um, and what you gave up would not be reflected in the financial statements until you're generating positive earnings. Now, some of that is like kind of a catch-22 because the only reason it's like that is because the accounting rules, mm-hmm. which said we don't include those shares, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you include those shares, then all of a sudden earnings per share actually doesn't go down by as much, you right. know? <laughs> right. So, so you know, so they basically applied really some primitive options pricing methodology um, and said, okay, you know, we want you to capture this cost. And they did it kind of incrementally. But when they went like kind of full throttle on it, it's right around the time that the, the 409A stuff happened. Mm-hmm. So, and, and because of that, then the auditors are like, well, we got this one thing to deal with. We got this other thing to deal with. Hey, let's just put those two together and say, <laughs> right. and, you know, and like mash it up. And so, because that's really what people think they need in in all capacities, mm-hmm. but they don't. I think right. just working with somebody that has a basis of understanding of how to do projections, right. how to do your cap table, mm-hmm. how to figure out, okay, now you have all these rounds of investments right. uh, and investors, like what is your portion still uh-huh. worth? Yeah, But a lot of times when I go into these incubators and talk about valuation, they'll ask me, they're like, well, can you really value a business with no revenue? Absolutely. Like, mm-hmm. So tell us. Can. Yeah. So, I mean, so, you know, whenever they talk about like the purpose of the valuation, it's mm-hmm. not a joke. It's a real thing. It's like, so like, what is the purpose? Okay. The purpose is here's a number for that IRS. Mm-hmm. Here's a number for the auditor. Here's a number that auditor will live with, you mm-hmm. know? Now, unfortunately, that gets into the blurry area in my mind mm-hmm. where if someone is a professional evaluator and they're just doing what the auditor tells them to do, mm-hmm. that to me is a little mm-hmm. twisted mm-hmm. because first of all, they're supposed to be independent. The evaluator is supposed to be independent and they're clearly not because if they were, then, you know, there right. would be, you know... <laughs> Right. A lot less kind of working together and, oh, okay, we'll change it. And literally they would tell people like from big four firms, just change it. Yeah. I'm like, no. (laughs) 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 I mean, essentially the 409A valuations or even value in a company with no revenue is Mm -hmm. an option pricing model. With yeah. assumptions, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you could have different assumptions than I right. could have. That's right. And they could all be in a reasonable range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but they have different outputs that we say, okay, now it's worth mm-hmm. five million. Now it's worth one million. That's right. And that's the mm-hmm. difficulty. Yeah, and uh, the other thing is, if you look at what is someone trying to achieve from a return standpoint. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about like, oh, I want a fourteen percent return. That may seem a little rich for like you're going to do this every year with a publicly traded company, you know, that's of some size. But if you're saying I'm going to do this every year with a venture back company, that's a loser mm-hmm. because the volatility is so high that if that's all you're getting, then you, you're getting a negative return because the next year you're like underwater, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. when something's that volatile, then we don't expect a grouping of indications of value, you know? Mm. So people force that to happen. Mm-hmm. So 
And it's usually based on like, you know, just available information, experience, who you're dealing with. Um, and, you know, so the number is always going to be wrong. That's just the way it works. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it just is, you know. And so, yeah, so I mean, you know, but pre-revenue companies, you, they get valued all the time. They get value when somebody puts money into them. Right. And all these systems, everybody's using that as an input. So Mm -hmm. that's a primary input. They take that, they put that into typically an option pricing model. Um, And then there's alternative models that the AICPA accepted. Um, None of these models, by the way, were ever being used by the people that were the primary investors. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that 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 doesn't just indict all of them, (laughs) but it does raise the question, you know? It definitely is, I think, a huge disconnect kind of Mm -hmm. in reality of what happens when companies are funded and, you know, and, and literally you can talk to, and a lot of these startup companies do, they go listen to, um, you know, a VC talk about this and then they listen to another guy and they they always ask, well, how do you value it? How do you Mm -hmm. figure it out? And a lot of the hard part for the VCs are like, well... Because I see a lot of these because mm-hmm. I've decided how much, you know, I mean, because sometimes it's passion. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times you need to find somebody that has at least some passion about whatever you're creating mm-hmm. so that they are more interested. Right. Um, sometimes you just have to find that they have extra cash laying around and they're willing to give it to you. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, there's just so many answers here. Mm-hmm. Um But I do want to talk about something that I think is very interesting that is kind of your new project called brainsprays.com. And this is fascinating to me because I have, you know, children that are being homeschooled right now. And I have a five-year-old that probably needs to get her act together. So (laughs) tell us more about this concept and kind of how you created it. Yeah, definitely. So brain sprays are interactive Alexa lessons that teach two to five-year-olds how to read and multiply like seven to 10-year-olds. So, and so the, the inspiration for me was actually my daughter. And so we'd done various techniques, you know, like when I would drive her to daycare, um, different things to teach her how to read um, and teach her how to spell words, teach her how to count numbers. and but then when she would go to daycare, then she would, these skills would go backwards you know? <laughs> because, you know, you're around nobody else, the other kids, you know, and the teachers, you know, they don't even know, you know, because at that age, nobody mm-hmm. can tell what they're saying other than their parents anyway. So, mm-hmm. um, so I started building these Alexa skills to reinforce and also introduce new skills. And so um, ended up with a collection of these. And so I had a reading at a first grade level by the time she was three. Um, and obviously, you know, she did, you know, the work. <laughs> um, and, uh, and when COVID started, it was interesting, too, because she was in a, you know, preschool then. And I was really shocked when I saw what they were actually doing there. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, was this a really big mistake? Because, like, you don't really see it when yeah. they're going there. You know? No. And, um, but then when you actually see like, this is what they're doing there, it's like, this was like a really good school. And I'm thinking to myself, 
clearly we have to do better than that. So mm -hmm. um, at that time, they said that she could add like, you know, two to numbers or something. So within three weeks, she was she knew half her multiplication tables. And so um, so then, you know, started writing some songs for these things, incorporating them into Alexa skills. There's an incentive system for them. Um, so there's about 1,200 kids using it right now. Wow. Um, and then I hope to have about 100,000 using it by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And my goal is on the reading to, you know, get a million kids reading before they get to kindergarten mm -hmm. and a million kids doing multiplication before they get to kindergarten. Because if you look at the statistics right now, kids in Singapore are supposedly three and a half years ahead of kids in the U.S. in math and two and a half years ahead in reading. And we spend more than most countries in terms of, you know uh -huh. how much it costs to send a kid to school? Right. Like $66 a day. Right. $66 a day. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's more than a lot of people's housing costs per cap per person. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, and still we're like way behind. So I don't, even if there was like a system to say, oh, we're going to make this all better. Let's put it in the school system. It would take you 15 years to like train the teachers and get through all the legal stuff. Right. So the better thing, at least in my mind, is just to fix it before they go to school. Because yeah. in school, there's tons of distractions. You don't know who they're going to end up with, which is a big factor. And um, so just teach them that before they get there, and then they can teach themselves. Yeah. So if they can read, they can literally teach themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and if they can multiply, then really, and they start there early enough, then there's all sorts of mathematics that open up. So now you can read. Now you can do math. So, um, yeah. So, so that's what it is. Out with my kids, I, hey, I feel like great. I should do the five-year-old and the ten-year-old together, <laughs> right? See who wins? Be like, so you have a basis of understanding of reading and math, and she has none. Who's going to get there faster? Because it would be a fun test, right? You know, like because I think one of them's struggling a little bit, so he might need to go back to the basics. I don't know. We'll see. It's well, I've seen examples where, I mean, it's very interesting because uh, right now, I mean, if you if you give her like any sight word, so I have actually, I can get send you some links. So yeah. I used to randomly just pick up sight words for like, here's a list of sight words that sixth graders should know. Oh, yeah. She'll just go through like 85% of them, she'll get them the first time. And so, and and I think that a lot of these things is just, you have to start sooner. So. Yeah. And it doesn't, we didn't spend like all day long or even an hour. Like the multiplication tables literally spent about 15 minutes a day, like introducing a new concept. Mm -hmm. um, but <clears throat> if there's some motivation, then the kid will reinforce it themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the other thing is not memorization either. So none mm -hmm. of my stuff is memorization. Yeah. Which well, I think. You it's know. fascinating because, of course, during COVID, everybody's had electronics and things like that. And I watched my daughter and legit, she knew how to work everything, but she was like playing a game. And then all of a sudden she was like, oh, I really like this. And she did talk to text within the game, mm -hmm. text out right. all of her friends uh -huh. that she liked whatever was happening. And mm -hmm. I was like, you don't know how to read. Yeah. You 
just texted all your friends in the game, and, and yet you have no concept of what just happened. But uh-huh. you know how to do all of those things. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't barely know like what game you're playing, you know. So mm-hmm. I mean, I think that kids are very smart younger. It's just mm-hmm. kind of giving them the tools. So I don't know. I'm gonna try it. If she's reading by the end of the year, oh my gosh, Lorenzo, that's gonna be crazy. Does she know her phonics? Does she know the sounds that letters make in the alphabet? Why are you asking me hard questions? Oh, sorry. <laughs> because if she does, I'm just saying she she can be reading in three months easily. Oh, gosh. So in three okay. months. We're so. gonna we're gonna come back in three months and we're gonna uh-huh. see. I love this. I love this concept. <laughs> Even better than the valuation stuff. I think it's awesome. <laughs> but anyway so um do you have anything else that oh we will put up this is the oh um, thanks appreciate that so do you have any other tips for maybe startup companies in this process instead of kind of being focused on the valuation Mm -hmm. maybe some other areas they should be focused on oh they should never ever focus on the valuation so the only thing they should focus on is the customer and I mean, and this could go to any company. So if you want to stay in, in business or you want to get into a business or you want to grow a business, your knowledge of the customer is the most powerful thing that you can get. Can get. Okay. And so, you know, talk to as many people that you think are your customer because you don't know if it's a new product, who's your customer. You make some assumptions, but they need to talk to as many people as possible that they think are and actually not people that you know. So talk to the people, you know, they're like, oh, that's so cool. Right. Right. So, (laughs) um, yeah. Yeah. Because you don't know who could be an investor either. Right. You know, like Mm -hmm. the more you talk to people, the more you get some concepts. But we've also put down your um, book that you wrote. Oh, thanks. So if people want to refer to that. And uh, we will attach all of your contact information to the video and the podcast so that if they have more questions, they should definitely call you, right? (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Lorenzo. We appreciate it. And we'll we'll have you back. Because I really need to understand Alexa more anyway. So we're we're gonna have you back for like a technology session. How about okay, that? Okay, awesome. Sounds good. That'd be fun. Okay. All right. Talk to you soon. All right, take care. Bye now. Bye.